0: Please turn with me this morning um, to continue our study through First Peter. In First Peter chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty-one. First Peter chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty-one it will be our text this morning. And it reads, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God." May God bless the reading of his word. Yesterday was a beautiful, um, absolutely gorgeous day. I spent most of the time uh, yesterday outside, um, just enjoying the the nice weather. And I I would probably describe it, or I did actually describe it to someone that I was talking to as perfect. I said, this is a, a perfect day. Not too hot not too cold. It seemed like it was just right, and everything was alive. Everything was—the sun was shining, um, the the plants were growing, and, you know, the garden was doing well, and everything just seemed so perfect and so right, and you could just see um, the glory of God in the creation yesterday. But just as um, seemingly perfect as it was, that glory that I witnessed yesterday and that we witness in God's creation is in and of itself just a remnant of the perfect world that God created. It is just a remnant of the perfect world that God created. And I don't think anyone would disagree with me when I say that we live in a broken and in a fallen world. And we can look around us and we can, we can see um, that there is so much... Um, brokenness, so much fallenness that exists within this world. And as much as we oftentimes try to turn a blind eye to that reality, we try to sort of close those things off to ourselves, we can't help but miss it. It's it's right there in front of us, and it seems to pervade every part of humanity, and, and, and its reaches go deep into this world. And even in the midst of all of this, and all this brokenness, and all of the, the this that we see within this fallen world, I think even still we are limited in our perspective and within our experience. And, and we don't even see with a right perspective how much um, sin has, has, has reached into this world. And we fall short to see the full reaches of sin that has corrupted every part of of God's creation, starting with us as his, as the, 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 the primary or the, the focal point of his creation, but, but even within his entire world. And it has result, that has come as a result of the fall and of sin. And sin corrupts everything. I think that's just a, a reality that the scriptures painted clear is that sin corrupts everything. Uh, Albert Walters said this, um, even as everything is part, of God's creation so everything has been touched by sin's destructive power everything has been touched by sin's destructive power sin has corrupted everything every part is is corrupted in some sense as sin pervades into it. It takes over. That's what, that's sort of what corruption is. It's like, sort of like that, that leaven that Jesus talked about, that, that leaveneth the whole lump. It just, it gets in there and it just takes over and it grows. And we can see that in the, in the picture of yeast and how that, how that leaven can take over something. And this is something that, that, that has pervaded each of our lives, I think to a degree more than we really even fully understand. Um, that begins in our minds, um, comes through our attitudes, comes out in our speech, ultimately shows forth in our actions. And the more I, I realize it, the more I examine my life, the more I see that sin has a way of its roots can go deep into every part of my life. And even within creation at large, um, this, the scripture says that the that the whole earth groans. It's like God's creation, this world, is, is groaning under the weight of the corruption of sin, and longs for the day of redemption. In Romans chapter 8, it says, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And then it goes on to say, and not only they, but ourselves also, which are the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our souls. The redemption, oh, sorry, the redemption of our bodies. Redemption, ransom, freedom from the corruption of sin. We long for that. This earth longs for that. And we, as God's chosen people, long for that day. Um, sin is like a virus. You know, there's so much talk about a, this virus that's going around, how contagious and deadly and infectious it is. Um, <clears throat> and there's a lot of people who are scared, scared to catch this virus. But the reality is that the, the virus of sin Sin is, is so much more infectious. It has a way of, of getting into the DNA, as it were, of everything. And I think as I, I just contemplate that reality uh, here on this earth, and just the reality of heaven, and I, and I put those two in contrast, I think I'm—or what I'm seeing is that I'm growing— one of the things that I'm growing more and more excited about— and 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 longing for about heaven is just the reality that we in heaven we will be free from sin that there is no sin in heaven we will be in the presence of god a holy god and sin will not abound and corrupt in the way that it does here in this earth and when I say free from sin, I don't just mean free from the consequences of sin. Because so often we get caught up in—it we. It seems like we hate sin because we hate the consequences of sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actual sin. We, the, the, we won't be just free from the consequences of sin, but we will be free from sin itself. In heaven, we will not be tempted to sin. We will not no longer have these fleshly bodies that have been corrupted by sin that are so prone to sin— and that we are so often overcome by sin, but we will be given new bodies that are not corrupted by sin. And that temptation, that that um, overcoming that we so often fall into, uh, will be gone, and we will be fully redeemed. We will be finally free from sin. <clears throat> but our freedom <clears throat> was not free. The freedom that we will experience in heaven and in some ways that we experience now, was not free. Our redemption, our ransom, came at a cost. And even within that word, uh, redemption and, and ransom, there is, even within that, that the definition of those words, this idea of a cost, a payment being made, um, to redeem something, the, the ver- it's, it's a verb, it's an action, um, and it means literally to, to purchase or to buy out. That's what it means to redeem something. And and to ransom, that's a, a synonym that's often used, and in some translation, in the text that we read here, it, it, it translates that word as, as ransom. To ransom is to liberate or to free, and we know that whenever there's liberation or freedom, there is some kind of cost that goes with that. Not even necessarily a monetary cost, but something that needs to happen in order for that freedom to take place. These are concepts that we can understand when we think about being redeemed or ransomed. And in our text today, um, as we read it, in our text today, Peter lays out another, what I would say, defining mark or characteristic of God's covenant people. Last time, in verses 13 through 16, um, Peter spoke about holiness that the lives of god's new covenant people should be defined by holiness and we went into to understanding what that was that that just as our heavenly father is holy we as his children are to live lives that reflect his holiness because we are his children we take on his characteristics not to earn his favor but just simply by virtue of who he is. He's our father, and we are his sons and daughters, and therefore we reflect, we are to reflect his holiness. But in our text today, Peter goes on to describe another glorious reality um, of God's um, new covenant people, what defines his people, and that is that they are redeemed. And the word and the image is one Um, that I think would have resonated with Peter's audience, um, whether they were Jews or Gentiles. I think that primarily the audience here would have been Gentiles, but there may have been Jews that were reading this letter as well. And just this whole concept, this whole image of redemption is one that would have resonated well with them. Um, for the Jew, um, they were very familiar with the idea of redemption. And the Old Testament is rich with stories and symbols and the rituals and everything that went along with this concept of redemption. From Israel's liberation in Egypt, um, looking back and seeing how they were, they were slaves in Egypt and they were liberated, they were set free by the power of God, um, out of bondage or the, um, Passover lamb that was sacrificed the Passover ceremony that whole event um, that took place um, was an image of this redemption that there was a price that was paid a lamb that was paid as a ransom and even the sacrificial sacrificial systems as well, all of the the sacrifices that were made as an atonement for sin and these rituals that took place all of these things were pointing to redemption and ultimately pointing to Christ of that payment, that price that was paid for atonement of sin. So this concept, I think, for the Jews, was definitely something that was very prevalent and understood, this idea of redemption. But even for the Gentiles, when we think about ransom and, and redemption, in the Roman world, um, slavery was very prevalent. Slavery was something that was was happening all around them. And <clears throat> to be ransomed... Um, was a term that they would have understood well, um, especially in relation to a slave and a slave's freedom. That slave was not their own. They were a slave to their master. But to gain freedom, a payment had to be made. Whether it was transfer of ownership um, from one slave master to another, or a payment made to free that slave, that they could become um, redeemed or ransomed or freed. And... You know, I don't have to go into all of the details of of what that exactly looked like in those times, but the Gentiles of the day would have very much understood what it meant to be redeemed or ransomed. And what Peter is showing them, these believers here, as he's writing this letter to them and to us as well, is how redemption is, this redemption, ransom, is front and center in the gospel message. And it's not just in a, a theoretical sense. He doesn't just sort of throw that term out there and just say that we are redeemed or we are ransomed, but lays it out in a very real way and in a way that has very real implications for our lives. And our redemption, he describes how our redemption is our purchase, is our freedom as believers. And it is right at the center of of the gospel, of that of creation, of the fall, of redemption, and ultimately of restoration, God's gospel plan. And Peter does such a good job of explaining and and clearly explaining our redemption in this text here today. And I'd like to use a a framework as we go through um, these verses together here this morning. I'd like to use as a framework three questions to help that we are going to answer um, as we, we try to look at what Peter is saying here about our redemption. And the three questions are this. What are we redeemed from? What are we redeemed with? And what are we redeemed for? What are we redeemed from? What are we redeemed with, and what are we redeemed for? And with God's help, let's look at the scriptures and answer these questions here together this morning. Uh, But before we do that, I'd just like to comment on the verse that, that leads up to verse 18, which is where we began are um, reading here this morning. I didn't have a lot of time to touch on this verse in my last sermon, um, but the, the verses that we read here um, come on the heels of a command or an exhortation that Peter give gave at the end of verse 17, where he says, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And Peter brings up this, this idea again of us that he's, he's brought up right from the beginning of us as, as God's covenant people, as, as these believers, that they are sojourners and exiles here on the earth, that they are temporary residents and that this world is not their home. This world is not our home. In a sense, we are seeking, as it says in Hebrews, seeking a better country whose builder and maker is God. This world is not our home. Our home is in heaven, and we have an inheritance that is waiting for us. And he clarifies about that inheritance back in verse 4. He says, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, and that is reserved in heaven for you. He talks about this inheritance, and that we long, we wait for that day when we will receive that inheritance that is laid up in heaven for you. For us, and Peter goes on and says that while we live here on this earth, we are to live in fear. And what Peter does um, when he says, what, "What does he? What does Peter mean when he says that we are to live in fear?" Um, past the time he says, "Past the time of your sojourning here in fear." What is he talking about? Is he is he saying that we're supposed to live in a state of of fear, of worry, and of terror? There's there's a bit of a tension here in this text, um, because at the beginning of verse 18, or sorry, at the beginning of verse 17, he says that we are to, he says, if we call on God as our Father, so we have this image of, of God as our Heavenly Father, and then he says, at the end, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And at least for me, and I think for a lot of us who had a, a, a good and a godly example of a father, it's hard for us to sort of reconcile those two things. Because our father is not necessarily someone that we fear, that we're afraid of. Our father is someone that we should love. So when he says that we, should, um, we call on God as our father, yet we are to live in fear, what does he mean by that? And I think what Peter is saying here, it's not a kind of terror, fear. It's not a kind of worry. Um, but rather it is a reverent fear. We are to pass the time of our sojourning here in reverent fear, a, a deep respect and regard that comes from a knowledge of and a respect for God as our Heavenly Father. And when we see this command In that light, in the reality of God as our Heavenly Father, it it starts to make sense for us that if we call on God as our Father, we must pass the time of our sojourning here in a reverent fear of that reality understanding who God is, that God is our Heavenly Father, um, that He is a just and a holy God. Um, he says in that same verse, He says that God judges every man according to His deeds. So He's He's not partial. He's not a God that um, will, simply because we are His children, He will just overlook things and treat us differently. No, He is, he is a just and He is a good God. Um, he will judge us accordingly and without partiality. And we should have a reverent fear of Him, as our father. You know, every good child, um, every good child-parent relationship has a healthy level of fear. And every child who loves and respect their father should live in a way that demonstrates that, um, that demonstrates that they have this reverent fear. And that's the contrast. And there is, there is actually a contrast. There's a big contrast between um, our lives, um, how they were defined before we were redeemed before we became children of God and our lives now as his as being as children of God and being redeemed um, beforehand we did not um, have reverence toward God. We did not have a reverent fear and awe and respect of God. In fact, it says in Romans chapter three, talking about those who live under the, under this condemnation of sin, it says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's how we once lived without regard for God, without um, a proper understanding of who he was and properly fearing him, that reverent fear that we ought to have. That was our state before, but now those who call on God now have that reverent fear of Him. And I think this, this, that, just this whole idea, um, there is some application there for us in the sense that a lot of us harbor fears. A lot of us, um, hold on to fears. Even as Christians, we tend to hold on to fears. You know, we're living in a hostile world, much like the believers in Peter's day as he's writing this letter specifically to believers who are surrounded by hostility, who are um, being um, persecuted for their faith, and they felt that social pressure uh, as being a result of uh, being—as a result of being God's people, they felt that— Ostracization, as it were, and I think a lot of us as Christians, even us, we we have that same feeling that we are um, we are now living in a in a post Christian world. We're living in a world where um, Christianity is not the norm anymore, and the values um, are being attacked um, very much so. And we feel this um, pressure, as it were. And a lot of us think to ourselves, "Well, what is this world coming to?" You know, we see laws that are being passed. Um, we see just sin um, and society and, and, and all of this, this system of this world, this post-Christian world, sort of overtaking things. And we can become fearful, and I've become fearful um, in many ways of, of that, what is to come. Fearful of the future, fearful for my children, I'm just wondering what is coming. But what Peter is saying here is that we need to fear the right thing. He doesn't say that we should fear the future. He says we shouldn't have fears of everything that's going on around us, but we need to fear the right thing. And if we're going to fear anything, it should be having a fear of God. We should not be characterized by the fear of men, but rather be characterized by a fear, a healthy, reverent fear of God that he and he is the only one that we should fear. And I'm dwelling on this because I just, I want to make the connection between this reverent fear that Peter says that we should have and our redemption. Because Peter goes right from this command to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear, he he, he goes right from that into talking about our redemption. And that leads us, I think, to the first question um, that, that that this text answers, which is, what are we redeemed from? And Peter describes that in the second part of verse 18, where he says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, from the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. So what were we redeemed from? We were redeemed from the vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Or in other words, another translation puts it this way, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And what Peter's saying here is that we have been redeemed, we have been ransomed from what we once were. That's what we have been redeemed from, from the vain conversation, from those futile ways that we once lived in and that that we inherited from our forefathers. And I think this looks differently um, for different groups. Again, we sort of break it up in the categories of, of the Jews and of the Gentiles. You know, for the Gentiles, um, what were those feudal ways that, we, that they were living in, that they inherited from their forefathers? Well, it was really a life of, of open sin. Um, Peter um, mentions that um, in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. These are the futile ways that Peter's talking about here, the way that we once lived, that we inherited from our fathers, that sinful lifestyle. And that's one side of things. That's one extreme. But even for the Jew, um, think about a Jew, a Jew reading this and understanding where they came from, because um, we've all come from somewhere. You know, for the Jews to walk in the futile ways inherited by their forefathers is really to live in um, a system of dead and empty religion. Maybe they weren't, um, their lives were not as open to the excesses of sin that the Gentiles and the debaucheries of sin that the Gentiles would have participated in. They had sort of a more moralistic lifestyle, but even still their lives were empty. The ways that they inherited from their forefathers, and at this time, especially at the time when Jesus came, it was dead, empty religion. That's what it was, and so either way, whether it's, like I said, whether it's um, that sin, that license to sin, and that extravagance of, of, of sinful lifestyle or legalism, either way, both are futile. And both were, we inherited from our forefathers. You know, every one of us, every one of us has inherited something from those who have gone before us. We've been handed down something from our forefathers. And I'm not talking about something good when I say an inheritance. I'm talking about sin. All of us have experienced something and have been handed down something from our forefathers. From our, our forefather Adam, first and foremost, that sin nature. That we received from him as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. That is passed on from generation to generation. But even more specifically. Then it's even different um, within individually in our lives. In the way that that manifests itself. And it's different in every family. Um, We all struggle with it in different ways. And we have tendencies and we are prone to different sins. For some it might be alcoholism. Or depression. Or pride. Or selfishness or perfectionism, or the love of money, or whatever it is, we all have these sinful tendencies that we are so prone to. I know what it is in my family, and, and we're all prone to um, the futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers. Some call it generational sin. You can call it whatever you like. Um, but whatever it is, it's something that feels more normal to us than righteousness. And that comes to us so easily, so naturally. We are so prone to these things. And, and I would challenge you, I challenge each of you to examine your lives and consider um, identifying, consider your lives and identify those sins that come so naturally to you, that have been passed on to you from your forefathers. And I want to encourage you, as you do that, to put your hope in the gospel. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to redeem us, to ransom us from the futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers. That's what we've been redeemed from. And in Christ... You have been redeemed, you have been ransomed, and you have been freed from those sins. Romans chapter 6 verse 18 says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So there's this transfer that took place where we were once enslaved to these futile ways that we inherited from our Father, but now we have a new master. We now serve Christ. We become slaves of righteousness and we take on those characteristics of our Heavenly Father, that of holiness, that of a redeemed life. And... That is the message, I think, of the gospel that is incredible. That is not just this, this sort of, like I mentioned before, this theoretical thing that there was some exchange happened, that Christ paid for our sins, and that, you know, because of that payment, it's like, you know, someone just made a payment and now we're good to go. No, this is something that invades and that takes over and impacts and influences every aspect of our lives. And I, and I pray that you would believe in the gospel and be saved. If you have not been redeemed, if you have not been ransomed by Jesus Christ and have that new life, I pray that you would believe in the gospel and that you would be saved, not just from your sinful habits, not just um, to be a better person. That's not what this is about. Not just to even avoid the wrath of God, but to become a child of God, his redeemed child, to be redeemed. That is what we are redeemed from. But what are we redeemed with? Um, what, are the, what is the means of our redemption? And that's the next question we'll look at here. Um, and we see that here still, even in verse 18, as he starts out. He says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver or gold, and then verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, So what is the means of our redemption? How did our redemption come about? We are redeemed, it says here, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ has purchased us, sorry, God has purchased us with the precious blood of his own son. Let that sink in for a minute. Just think about that. As we consider this, this father-son relationship and that union that, that, that there is, and we, we, we understand that even as um, those of us who are fathers, we have children, how much we love them. Our redemption came about through the shedding of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Think about that cost. Think about how precious that blood was, that blood is, the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, it says here, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, that perfect lamb. And we see the image of the Old Testament of, of the instruction that was given to the Israelites to, to take that perfect lamb at the Passover, that young lamb that had no spots, no blemish, that was so precious, and to slaughter that lamb. Think about that, what it meant to take such a, such an innocent perfect little animal and slaughter it. I'm sure there was many tears that that took place of the children as they if they would have been witnesses to seeing this lamb being slaughtered and think why does this lamb have to die? How much more precious is the blood of Jesus Christ than that lamb? And if if we would weep over um, an animal that would be slain um, for atonement, how much more should we weep and should we appreciate and understand the depth of the precious blood of Christ that was shed for us. And Peter illustrates this um, in in contrast here. as He's talking about what we have been redeemed with, and he puts it first in the negative. Um, this is what he says. He, he talks about what we have been um, not redeemed with. He says, for as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver or gold. So when it comes to precious things, I think a lot of us um, silver and gold would be one of those things that, in our minds in our human minds, we would think as something that is very precious, something that 's very valuable to us. so Peter illustrates um, the the preciousness of the blood of Christ by contrasting it with something that is valuable to us that we can see of silver and of gold and he says your redemption what he 's saying here is your redemption is not something that that can be bought um, with something that 's corruptible that 's pe- that's corruptible and perishable, with corruptible and perishable things, like silver and like gold, um, with money, because our inheritance is not perishable. Remember he said back in verse 4, he says, we have an inheritance, inheritance that is incorruptible, that is undefiled, and that does not fade away. So how is it that our inheritance that is incorruptible could be purchased with something that is corruptible, like silver and gold? He says, no, it can't be. We were not redeemed with corruptible things. It had to be something more. It ha- we have to be redeemed with something that was incorruptible. Not even the blood of the sacrifices could atone for sin. Again, we look back in the Old Testament and we see all of the the foreshadowing and the sacrifices that took place all pointing to the image of this atonement, this price that was paid. And Hebrews talks about that. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, "...for the law having a shadow of good things to come, but not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which were offered year after year continually make the comers thereunto perfect." For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. It was impossible. Those things could not atone for sin because they are all imperishable. They were just an image. They were just a foreshadowing pointing to that imperishable thing. The perfect Lamb of God. The precious blood of Christ that could take away our sins. That was the only thing that could atone for our sins. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And Romans 3, 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. He is our only Redeemer. <clears throat> and he says here in, in verse 20, who verily was foreordained or foreknown before the foundation of the world. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world but made manifest in these last times for you. God's plan of redemption was set in motion, was already set in motion before the foundation of the world. That's an incredible reality that even before sin entered into the world, God ordained He foreknew Christ and ordained Christ to be that atoning sacrifice for our redemption. Jesus is not plan B. Even before sin entered into the world, God ordained the means of our redemption through Jesus Christ. And he established everything that was necessary to fulfill his redemptive plan here on earth. And we are privileged as a result. Um, <clears throat> we are a privileged people. Even as he said back in verse, verses 10 through 12, um, he highlights this fact that we are a privileged people because we are witnesses and, and recipients and we can see and experience the redemption that has been brought about by Jesus Christ that was made manifest in these last times for us. Christ came to the earth to give us to give his life as a ransom. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the son of man came not to to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom. Who by him, that is Christ, do believe in God. And that leads us to our last question of what are we redeemed for? What are we redeemed for? And verse 21 says, says that, we have been redeemed that your faith and hope might be in God. That your faith and hope might be in God. Ultimately, we are redeemed for God. Titus chapter 2, uh, verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. We are redeemed for God, for Himself, as it says here. He is making a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. And really that's what we see here within God's plan of redemption, within the gospel, is that um, redemption is the reversal of the fall. What God is doing in his redemption and ultimately working for the, the restoration of all things, that is, redemption is that reversal. It's this, this fall that took place and God is now taking that, redeeming it, and restoring it back to what it was. And the reversal means for us that those who are spiritually dead are made alive, as it says in Ephesians two four, and that those who were children of wrath are now the children of God. Um, and he says, purifying for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And now we see this come full circle as we, we meditated in the last sermon about um, Holiness, and and as he says in verse fifteen, he says, "But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle." Um, we have been purified for him, and we are a people of his own possession. Further on, um, later on, he says, actually in the next chapter, chapter 2, he says that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people who have been redeemed to show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter wants us, he wants you to see that the price, he wants you to see the price that was paid for your holiness. And that's the connection here between this holiness and our redemption. Peter wants you to see the price that was paid for your holiness, that it was so valuable that he gave his only begotten son for your holiness so that you would live a holy life for God. And anything less than a holy life insults the price that was paid for you. Now, this is not I'm not saying here that your salvation depends on your holiness, that somehow we need to be holy to earn God's favor, to to, to be um worthy of being his people. That's not what this is saying at all. But Jesus Christ, God wants or God wants us to see what a price that was paid, and that 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 price that was paid is what redeems us. And now changes us from the inside out to be his holy people. Our right standing before God only comes through the merit of Jesus Christ. But we, you, have been redeemed and ransomed for a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God. To show forth the praises of him who has called you from out of darkness into his marvelous light. So ultimately, our redemption is About God. It's not about us. It's about God. It's for God to be moved, to be redeemed, and restored. And that's starting even here and now on this earth. One day God will make all things new. One day um, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything will be restored as it once were. But even now, with the coming of Christ and the beginning of his kingdom here on this earth, that is now um, at this time inside of us— the kingdom of heaven has come is inside of us and it is it is working outward God is beginning and, and starting that process now within our lives and it is showing forth through our lives and one day all of those who have been redeemed will sing the song of the redeemed for all eternity everything can be redeemed and restored and I'll, I'd like to just end by reading that the, the quote that I read at the beginning um, The the, the full quote, um, the extended portion of it, um, that says, "...everything is part of God's creation. Everything has been touched by sin's destructive power, and everything can participate in the renewing or the redeeming work of God in Christ by the Spirit." Everything can participate in the renewing and the redeeming work of God in Christ by the Spirit." And that's my prayer this morning, as we would consider um, this text of scripture, um, as Peter is encouraging these believers to consider their redemption, what they have been redeemed from, what they are redeemed with, and what they are redeemed for, that we too would also consider our lives and and believe and see that everything, everything can participate in the renewing and redeeming work of God in Christ, because of what he has done and because of what he has accomplished through the shedding of his precious blood upon the cross. Amen.